Welcome to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. We're part of teams our whole life. And if you're a good teammate, you'll always be in demand, right? They, when you make people around you better and people like working with you, people will seek you out. So our guest today is an internationally known uh, TEDx speaker. He's founder of Changing the Game Project. He's author of a, a few best-selling books and, and leading youth sports bloggers. So I think when it comes to youth sports space this is the individual that you always need to follow he's the host of the wage champions podcast he's one of the top rated which is one of the top rated podcasts in the world for coaches our guest was episode 46 on the mental toughness podcast and he's back his new book is titled the champion teammate timeless lessons to connect and compete and lead in sports and life so i'm holding up the right here for the picture be nice our guest today, John O'Sullivan. John, man, thanks so much for, for taking the time, buddy. Rob, thanks for having me back on, man. I always enjoy our conversations, whether you're on my podcast and vice versa, and just our emails and so much other stuff. So it's great to be here again. Absolutely, man. You know, I'm always fascinated because I've written eight books. You've written books. Um, I, I wouldn't have anybody ever copy the process about how I write my book. But walk us through, what is the process of how you go about like writing this book? Yeah, well, first of all, this one I had a co-author, you know, my podcast co-host, Jerry, Dr. Jerry Lynch. And so this was a different process, right? Um, you know, full disclosure, ever since I was in college, I work well on deadlines. I don't work well ahead of time, right? So my process for my own books has been get my editor she gives me like, I need this by this date and I'll get it done, <clears throat> but I'll probably do most of it the week out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and so this was a really interesting process because I had a co-author. So <clears throat> Jerry and I came up with the idea for the book and it was really like, we do a lot of work with teams and Jerry's been at it for four decades. And, you know, I've been doing it the last seven, eight years. And we're like, what is, you know, and a lot of our teams say, Hey, we want to do a team book read together. Right. And so we were like, well, let's write that book on being a great teammate. And uh, then, of course, from that, you're going to get culture and you're going to get leadership and you're going to get all this other stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so Jerry and I sort of brainstormed out what would the chapters be? And, and then we split them up about 50 50. Like, OK, well, let's pick the ones that um, we're each uh, you know, going to write. And then we're like, great and go. And about two weeks later, Jerry sends me like 50 pages. He's like, how are you doing? <laughs> I hadn't even started. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll get you something by the end of the week. Right. And, and then it was the same sort of thing. And so it was an amazing book in terms of us being teammates. Right. So we we're writing about it, but we had to do these things. We each had to pick moments to lead. We each had to pick moments to follow. We had to connect and be respectful and, and trust our teammate that he was doing his part. We had to have difficult conversations. I mean, probably most of it around, you know, titles and 
book cover art more than the content of the book. And so, so this was a really interesting process, but it went really well. And Jerry and I are actually working on another one together right now. Um, but, uh, but it was really fun. It was really fun to do a book with a partner like that. Cause that was new for me. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I'm glad it was a good experience too, man. Cause yeah, it, it was, and they're not always a good experience, but yeah. it was for us. Whenever, whenever I finish a book, man, it's the same thing as after finishing like an ultra marathon. It's like, I am never doing this again. <laughs> and then two weeks later, man, I sign up for another race. You know, you so. sign up for another race, or you think you have another idea. And you're like, that's a book, right? And I always think about that. Like, is this idea a blog post, or is it a book, right? Um, and most things are blog posts, but sometimes a lot of those blog posts go well together in a book. Yeah. See, I'm going to have people reach out to you because I will have a lot of people I run into. Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. What do you think? Uh -huh. And like I start to like, you know, twitch and cringe. And I, I just say, you know, I, I'm not the person to ask because it is. I mean, it's a it's a dark experience. You're looking at a sheet. And I'm not saying I got writer's block, but to have everything come together where it's like this is something that can help. This is an important topic. I mean, there is a. It, it is. It's like running a hundred mile race, man. It, there are a lot of dark times that kind of go through it. Did you yeah. have any of those at least coming through the? Oh, oh, for sure. And I mean, every book I've written, I've had chapters that just pour out of me and I've had chapters that I know have to be a part of it that are just hard to write. And, and you know, a lot of times like I'll, I'll start, you know, like sometimes I'll, I'll get my, my prompt will be a part of a blog post that I'd already written. And then I'll just tag onto it, you know, and like that little sort of prompt that that gets you rolling. And then you then you tend then I tend to roll. Right. I tend to do pretty, pretty well with that. So, I mean, it's not a dark experience for me. Like yeah. I tell people, like in my experience, it, it's not that hard to write a book. It's really hard to sell a book. <laughs> You know, it's really hard to build your audience and build trust and have people and everyone thinks, oh, if I write a book, it'll just roll off the shelf. But I mean, you probably know the statistics. It's like, you know, 98% of books sell like less than a thousand copies or whatever. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's perfectly accurate, but it's it's close. You know, it's like it's it's really hard to let people know that you have a book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. man. Hey, good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass, but it's all way too complicated, then visit our website, drrobbell.com, and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. Um, well, let's talk about that, man, because I feel it's an excellent you know, toolkit for coaches the way you wrote this. I mean, you wrote it in three big parts, and each one is in toolkit segments but i mean mm -hmm. connect compete and then the last section with lead mm -hmm. when and i want to pull out like a couple of different things but do you think you could start with the one um from connect it was set standards not rules yeah sure oh, that's one of my favorite that was powerful yeah that was and, and, and i'm and i'm glad you asked me because i actually wrote that chapter versus one of Jerry's chapters so so that was that was one of my chapters um but um yeah. And, and so sort of just to sort of look at the 30,000 foot overview, you know, we wanted to write this book that this is a book that a coach could have and do a lesson a week throughout the season. Uh, but it was also, you know, written for 
college teams, high school teams, even down to middle, like we've had middle school teams use it and, and they do it as well. And so, you know, the chapters are three pages, four pages. It's a story and an idea. And then there's sort of, you know, we call it raise your game, like, you know, questions, um, you know, at the end of each chapter to discuss as a team. Right. What do we need to start doing that we're not doing right now? What do we need to stop doing that we are doing? What do we need to keep doing so that we're more connected or we're being better leaders or whatever? So that's kind of how the book was set up. So, yeah, standards, not rules. This is something that I really stick with. And and the idea for it first came to me many years ago. A guy named Mike Zigarelli, who is a leadership professor at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, wrote about their men's and women's soccer teams. And how, um, you know, they had won at that point 16 or 17 national championships between the two of them since 2000. And and really what the big thing about the program was, we don't have a lot of rules, but we have some very high standards. And, and rules, as any of us with kids know, rules are there to be broken. They're there to be tested. They're there to be whatever. And if if you have a lot of rules as a coach, you end up just being a police officer, right? You're just going around punishing people for breaking rules and it's not to say that you shouldn't have any rules right but in our experience what we found is the best programs have really high standards right and standards are things that we aspire to right so we aspire to um be a great teammate we aspire to respect our team we aspire to these things we aspire to come in fit not because coach is going to bust me, but because I don't want to let my teammates down. Right. And so I, I think the the coaches that we've talked to over the years and our podcast and we've worked with, the ones who consistently have great teams, they just have super they're very few, but really high standards. And when new players come in, those standards are articulated to the new players and and then they're they're held accountable for them, right? And standards is like, this isn't something that, you know, oh, I'm a senior, so it doesn't apply to me anymore. No, it applies to me more than ever, right? And this is like one of the things I love about Messiah and some of these other, some of the programs I work with. When you're a senior, now you have the honor of carrying the water. You have the honor of picking up the cones, right? You do, you won't, you don't ask anyone to do things that you're not willing to do yourself. And that's a that's a standard that very quickly brings new players into the fold. You're a college freshman, you're coming in there, and you've got an all-American senior picking up the cones, showing up early, staying late, helping people out. Pretty quickly you realize this isn't really normal, you know, and I better be on my A game. Like, what am I gonna do? Am I going to just slack and not pick up the cones because the seniors got them? Yeah, good luck with that. Let me know how that's working for you. (laughs) Have you seen, because you've worked with so many different teams, man, and the more and more I see like teams, when the leadership really comes from within, like it comes from the actual players. Yeah. It seems like that makes, number one, it it just makes the coach's job a whole lot easier. But it just seems, man, those are the teams that really perform and excel. Yeah, 100%. And I think as a coach, right, giving your players that autonomy, you know, teaching them so that, you know, I have my friend Todd Bino says the intelligence needs to be on the field, not on the sideline, especially in games like soccer or lacrosse or hockey, you know, 
there's no time there. You know, it's American football. Maybe the coach is calling the play, but then we love the quarterbacks who call the audibles, right? That's the intelligence on the field. Um, and so that really has to start early. Right. And, and so when I coach youth teams, that's a big thing. It was, it was funny, Rob, like this past weekend, my, I have a 16, 17 year old boy soccer team that I'm coaching and we actually have we have um, a guy who's doing his master's in sports psychology at local o- locally, and his background's in martial arts, so he doesn't know anything about soccer really. Um, but he's with us full time, getting his clinical hours in, right? And it's awesome. And so he's at the game, and um, and halftime rolls around, and we're winning, but we're not playing great and we're struggling with a little tactical thing. And so I'm like getting it ready. And my team captain comes off the field and he's like, he's like, John, do you have that little tactics board? I need to talk to the team. I'm like, yeah, here you go. So he takes it, runs out, gives a talk to the team, solved, we good, boom. And I'm like, yeah, that's that was it. That's kind of what I was going to say. So we're good. You know, and I'd like that was a super proud moment. And I think this guy I was working with, he's like, oh wow. But I don't think that's normal. Like a lot of coaches want it to come from them. And I, I'm so excited that like they got it, you know, but that's over many years of the, with this group at halftime saying first five minutes, go with your position group and then bring something back to the team, right? That doesn't just ha- necessarily happen organically if a coach is always the one who has to lead, you know? Right. Right. No, that's a great point. What a good example, man. I love those stories. Yeah. Um, one of the pieces I wanted to talk about and and then get to a couple of chapters of the book, but one of the things, and you mentioned in there, but, but Project Aristotle's 2012, that was the, um, and I can let you talk about it, you elaborate on it, but uh, where, where Google went out and looked at, hey, what were these important um, factors that went into success for teams? And mm-hmm. it always got back to psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I keep seeing that because I, I say this one too, and you can borrow this one if you like this one, right? Yeah. But in theory and practice, they are exactly the same. Yeah. But in practice, they're different. Yeah. And when you see that play out, like I will see when when people are not psychological, when there's not psychological safety, like when they don't feel psychologically safe, then you see them act out then you see them not take ownership, then you see them deflect, complain, blame, wherever that's going to be. But can you talk about, in your experience, how you've seen that play out and just the importance of psychological safety? Yeah. And so this is, you know, the idea that, you know, I have a voice and if I use my voice, I'll be respected. I might not be agreed with, right? Say Like psychological safety is not safe spaces, Right. Oh, I can think whatever I want and I'm protected from conflicting things. No, like the best, highest, you know, um, functioning businesses and stuff, you know, there is back and forth. There's banter, there's disagreement, but it's done in this respectful manner so that I feel like I can speak up. And even if I'm disagree with, that's okay. Right. Right. And, and I, and so I think, you know, sometimes that exists. I, I see a, a lot with youth teams and and even, you know, the ones that I coach with certain kids is that they don't feel very safe. And that safety can come from an environment created by the coach. It can come from how teammates treat each other. It can come from how parents interact with their kids. 
It can come sometimes from kids being so future focused on, oh my God, they're scouts at the game that they tense up and they freeze up or whatever. And I know with athletes you've worked with, it's, 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 it's very similar, right? If I start thinking about what this putt means, <laughs> you know, it might not be the best thing. Or if I start thinking three holes ahead about that Island green, I might be in trouble. Right. And so, um, so I think it's really important. You know, I, I think there's a woman named Maureen Monty who we've had in the podcast and she's done a lot of work in strengths finder. And she, she, um, talked about one of the differences between boys and girls, male and female athletes, like what are their biggest fear? And she said in, in her research and her work with all the way up through Olympians, boys fear losing, whereas girls often fear um, making mistakes or looking silly or being judged by others. Those are two different things, you know? Mm -hmm. So how I approach safety for those, like, you know, approaching safety in terms of ah, if we lose okay versus you know really with girls that bond and how teammates treat each other because they're so afraid often of what is my teammate going to say if i miss this free kick or if i make a mistake or if i'm playing badly and things like that or what are my parents going to say or what is my coach going to say so yeah i mean i think you know creating the right environment that's what coaches are. We're the architect of the environment. And from what's being taught and what they're learning to am I, af you know, not afraid to make mistakes and, and go here and that this is what this is how we do things here. We challenge mm -hmm. ourselves. We make mistakes and my teammates are OK with it. As long as I'm doing it with full focus and full effort, a mistake is just fine. Yeah, no, great, great point, man. Well, well said. When. When coaches are the architect of the environment, as you so eloquently stated, like where do you see high-level coaches getting it wrong? I mean, <clears throat> there's an amazing coach in the highest level of soccer now, Jurgen Klopp, who just mm -hmm. this week when we're recording it just decided, you know, just announced that he's going to step down at the end of the season because and he's at Liverpool in England. And he's just, I mean, you can just see him. He's so passionate. He's so engaged. He's so hardworking. His players love him. The fans love him. He's so invested that you can't help but like want to play for the guy, you know? And, you know, I, I don't know him. I've never spoken to him, but you just can look at how he interacts with the people around him. He's always got a smile on his face and he's fiery. He gets angry or whatever, but there's like a, there's an ease and there's a joy to his work and he's stepping down. Cause he's like, I'm, I've, I can't bring this anymore. Eight years. I need a break. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think people respect that as well. Like what they don't respect is when a coach is not authentic. Uh, when a coach is not bringing the energy or the passion or the preparation or the organization that they deserve. And so, um, you know, I, I think high level coaches, you know, really do that. And then I think there's a movement in high level coaching now finally to teach more of the psychological side, to teach more of the emotional intelligence side of things. There's a group working through the NCAA on a coach development, which the NCAA might eventually mandate for all college coaches you know, like extra credentialing in emotional intelligence and team culture and communication 
because as coaches, we tend to just dive deeper into the X's and O's of our sport. Mm-hmm. But that's you, like no ath- no college athletic director has ever fired their football coach because they didn't know enough about football, right? They fire them because they can't communicate. They can't recruit. They can't build culture. They don't have standards. The discipline's poor. So why not? Why aren't we educating coaches on this stuff? And I think that's that's coaching 2.0 right now. And there's a movement towards it. Um, and the, I think the best examples of great coaches in different sports are really good at this part already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Um, another one of the chapters from the book, I'm not sure if you wrote this one, but Pet the Dragons. <laughs> That's mine too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk about that chapter that, um, and just the symbolism of that? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a, there's a, you know, you and I both have kids and, uh, there's a a little kid's book called there's no such thing as a dragon. Um, and it's about this little boy who wakes up and there's this cute kitten sized dragon in his room and he pets the dragon and the dragon's cute and cuddly. And he goes downstairs and says to his mom, you know, Hey, there's this dragon. She says, there's no such thing as dragons. And all of a sudden it gets bigger, you know, and throughout the day, as it, you know, every time his mom denies the existence of the dragon, the dragon gets bigger and bigger until it eventually takes over the home and, move, you know, moves the home. And until his mom and dad acknowledge that there's a dragon um, and then it gets small and cute and cuddly again. And the the metaphor, the analogy there is that, you know, small problems when they're addressed, stay small and cute. But when they're ignored and we pretend that they don't exist, they eventually take over your house. They take over your marriage. They take over your locker room. They take over your team. Um, And so I love that story and I use it as an analogy with the teams that I work with. And so, you know, a couple of them have like little stuffed dragons that they just leave in their locker room. Right. And the whole idea is, um, is address issues when they're small. Right. Keep it cute and cuddly. Walk up to the front, pet the dragon and acknowledge the problem. And, you know, my role and I'm sure with some of your teams as well, sometimes my role is to facilitate the really difficult conversation. And I'll talk to the coaching staff and, you know, sometimes they'll be like, oh, you know, we're sorry that you're here at this time because we're dealing with this. I'm like, this is the exact time I should be here. Right. Right? And I'm going to go into the locker room with the team and we might not be out for two hours but I'm going to make sure that this gets brought up and we're going to address it because it's not going away and everyone knows it and everyone feels it, but you can't stick your head in the sand and pretend there's no such thing as a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And so how many teams have you seen? How many teams have I been on, right? That have an issue that they do not want to acknowledge and it eventually takes over your team. Yeah. And that's the part where I look at, like psychological safety when it comes to that, because if teams aren't willing to go there, if they're not willing to look at, um, you know, those dragons, then there's a reason that I look at it. Well, why, why is it that we're not going to address it? And I look at it as, well, because a lot of times like people don't want to put themselves out there in terms of whether they're going to get criticized, ridiculed, or shot down because, Hey, this is a great player. You know, or right. whatever the dynamics kind of come to it. And that's where I look at 
the really importance of having those crucial conversations. Yeah. And I mean, the situations can be different, right? It can be a general discipline behavior thing where, you know, a college team, people are going out, they're going out the night before games, there's drinking, there's whatever, right? Um, and sometimes it's one person who's causing problems. And, you know, I've addressed that, but, I, you know, I don't ambush a player, right? I pull that player aside and say, you know, this is what we're seeing. How are you seeing this? Do you understand how your teammates might see your actions? Um, do you understand uh, how, um, you know, your actions, um, you know, wh where are you coming from that maybe they don't understand? Um, are you okay if I facilitate a conversation and we're going to bring this out and you're going to say your piece and they're going to get to say their piece and we're going to, we're not going to leave the room until we understand each other. Right. And so I don't ever ambush a player, but, but, you know, if they're a competitor, if they're a high level athlete, they want it brought out because they know it's affecting their performance as well. So yeah, from a safety standpoint, sometimes I have to create that, like, I will keep you safe. Right. I have your back in this conversation. So please know that it might be difficult, but I'm not, I'm not letting anyone gang up on you either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. you're not 100 percent wrong. Right. <clears throat> what was um, what part of the book was most important to you? Well, you know, it, it was it was funny. You know, we, we wrote these chapters and wrote these parts and then we can't uh, you wrote these. Um, yeah, we basically wrote all the chapters and then sort of. You know, Jerry was like, hey, these seem to fall into three parts, mm -hmm. right? A leadership part. Uh, and, and obviously some span the gap from two. And so we're like, oh, let's put that one there and that one there. But so it wasn't like we're like, oh, we got to write this, right? We, but it pretty clearly like there was almost like 10 lessons in each right out of the gate. We're like, oh, yeah, look at that. Really, what's that about? That's about the relationship game. That's about the being competitive and that's about leadership um and uh so so yeah i, I don't you know, again like i i had favorite chapters you've mentioned two of them already um that, that i really like what's that those were two of your favorites yeah i mean i just i think they're important you know and they're different and they're not necessarily things that were taught in coaching courses um or they're, they're not necessarily things that um you know uh we think about often uh, until they're pointed out. And then we're like, well, yeah, of course, every locker room has a problem. Or of course, we want standards and not rules and things like that. So, yeah, so those are one. And and just, you know, again, we every chapter has a, a story. And I mean, there's some super fun stories in there as well. There were podcast interviews or things like that, that I just think, you know, across a variety of sports, male and female athletes and uh, yeah, so it was fun. Want to listen to your favorite music, but you're sick of all the commercial interruptions and negative news today? Tune in to KukoRadio.com. Music for your mindset. We're a commercial-free online radio station playing nothing but hits. Our free iOS and Android apps are available for download at KukoRadio.com. Yeah. John, in terms of your podcast, Wave Champions podcast, like what... Um, you've done so many interviews to put you on the spot. What's one thing or what was a common theme or something that 
that has really stuck out to you, either from the interview side or the interviewee side, you know, throughout all these conversations you've had? I mean, I, I you know, we can kind of put our guests into different buckets, right? And so if we talk about the coach bucket, right, the, this really common theme from people like Steve Kerr and Phil Jackson and Tara Vanderveer, who just broke the NCAA wins record, and Cindy Timschel, Hall of Fame lacrosse, Nancy Stevens, field hockey, you know, all these different sports. The big thing that these coaches talk about is that relationships are at the center of coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Coaching is not an X's and O's business. It's a relationship business. And one really common theme that I found has found really interesting is if you ask them, you know, at the end of the season, what do you wish you did more of that might've made your season better? It's almost always more individual meetings that the best coaching happens one in one-on-one -on -one conversations. And obviously if you're a youth coach, you're not really having the time for that, but if you're a college coach, right. Uh, if you're a pro coach, yeah, you have time to to sit down with your athletes and and your assistant coaches do, and that's where coaching happens. So that's a really big theme that I think is super important for coaches who are listening to this. Um, and then, you know, from you know psychologists and um, stuff like that that we've had on, just you know, the idea that you know, you, you you can't have an absence of fear. You can't have an absence of nerves or stress, right? The golfers you're working with, right, that are on TV, they feel pressure. They feel stress. They feel that. What they do is they build the tools to, to overcome it. They build the capacity to to endure it, you know, and that we're wrong when we tell kids, when we make them feel like, oh, there's something wrong with you because you're nervous or because you're scared or whatever. It's like, no, that's, there's nothing wrong with you. That's, that's normal. Welcome to being human, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so that's a really common thing as well. Um, get your reps in so that you're able to say, yeah, I'm nervous, but I've been here before. Right. And I've developed the tools to sink this three foot putt or to make this free throw or to score this penalty kick. Yeah. Well done, man. John, what my last question, I always answer the ask it the same way, but what question should I be asking that that I have forgotten to ask? Um I I don't know that you've necessarily forgotten to ask it, but what I, what I would say is that, you know, as the subtitle of the book says, this is, you know, being a great teammate in sports and life. And I, I think Sport is such a, a wonderful place to get reps dealing with adversity, working with other people, working with difficult people, working with people through a difficult situation, learning when to speak up and use your voice, learning when to follow someone else, um, um, learning to, you know, love people even when you don't like them. Um, you know, these that's what sport does for you. And I think if parents... Um, would take that approach and say, this is why I put my kids in sport, not to get a scholarship, not to turn pro. Like that's great if that works out, but to get their reps at all these other things, because I think great teammates, I know great teammates are always in demand, right? It, you And you're always part of a team, your family team, your 
church, your community, your work team. We're part of teams our whole life. And if you're a good teammate, you'll always be in demand, right? When you make people around you better and people like working with you, people will seek you out. And what an amazing skill that we can learn through sport um, if we allow sport to teach it, right? So experience that adversity. Deal with that difficult person. Don't protect your kids from them. Encourage them to go and reach out and, and learn from these moments. And so I think that's the kind of – that's why we wrote this because, you know, 99.9% of people are never making a living from sports, right? But you're going to make a living from something else. But these skills that you learn, man, they can they can take you places. Mm-hmm. Last way beyond the sport is over, man. I love it. Yeah, Jonathan Sullivan, man, way to crush it again. But thanks so much for taking the time joining us. Rob, thank you so much. I re- truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell. And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.